You ready to go to the Word of the Lord this morning? Let's do that. Get your Bibles out. We're going to head to the book of Acts. We're going to take a little journey for just a bit. I want you to give me the time, please, and the attention to lay some groundwork for where we're going to end up uh, in just a few minutes, and I promise I'm going somewhere with it. But as we move into 2017, I want to put a challenge before you because it seems to me that every Christian would be well served to, in some form or fashion, have three groups of people in their lives, or even just these three people in their lives. It's not mandatory from Scripture, but it is certainly a help in your spiritual growth. Number one, I think every one of us needs someone like an Apostle Paul, an older man, an older woman who is a mentor to you, who's willing to speak into your life and to pour into your life, uh, to build into your life. Now, you need to understand they are not necessarily, uh, they don't have to be smarter than you or more gifted than you, but it's someone who has more life journey than you have. There's something for, it to, for you to glean from someone who has more life journey than you. So everyone needs someone like an Apostle Paul. That's number one. Number two, not only do you need someone pouring into your life, but you need someone that you are pouring into there, something where you're pouring out into someone else's life. In other words, you need a Timothy in, in your life, a younger person that you are building into, that you are pouring your life into, that you are investing in. This whole thing is called mentoring, by the way. I know you know that's part of our vision, what we are here. But you need someone that you are affirming, that you are encouraging, that you are teaching, you're training, and and yes, maybe even correcting to whatever uh, degree, but you're advising them and you're praying for them and they know that you are doing that. Everyone needs an Apostle Paul in your life. Everyone needs a Timothy in your life. Not only someone who teaches you, not only someone that you teach, but each of us also need a third person, and that is a Barnabas. You need a Barnabas in your life. And we're going to go to Acts chapter 4 and just keep your Bible open there. We're going to flip around. We're going to take a little journey through parts of Acts because we're going to talk about Barnabas primarily today. So what's Barnabas and why do you need one in your life? Well, Barnabas is someone who is connected to you. It could be a peer, but it is primarily someone who loves you but is not particularly impressed by you, okay? It's someone, yeah, that's your spouse, I know, right? That's what you're saying. Someone who loves you but is not particularly impressed by you. It's someone to whom you can be accountable. It's someone who is neither afraid nor are they hesitant to challenge you when that's needed. And it's very critical to have someone like this in your life. I have a couple of those in my life, two or three actually. And so I, I have to pose the question to you today Do you have any structure that looks like that in your life? Can you place the name of someone in your life who holds the position of Paul? Can you place in your life right now, in your life, can you place someone in the position that you say is in the position of Timothy in your life? Or someone who is the equivalent of Barnabas in your life? I know, ladies, I tried to come up with female names like Pauline and Timothina and something else because I don't want you to feel excluded from this. The old saying goes like this, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Show me your friends 
and I will show you your future. That's true of our children. It's true of our marriages. It's true of our own personal lives. And so the challenge is, is there a Paul? Is there a Timothy? And is there a Barnabas, Barnabas in your life? Most of us can probably recall, particularly if we have any life journey behind us, friends that we started off with in the Christian life or friends that we started off maybe possibly in ministry with who are, who are no longer there. And by that, I, I don't mean that they've passed away or that they've died, but they have somehow taken another direction in lifestyle or in that which they do that has taken them from the Christian life. Maybe they were in ministry, but they're no longer involved. Maybe they were involved in lay leadership in the church, but they aren't even serving the Lord today. Is it possible that those people, if someone has come to your mind, is it possible that they did not have well-established relationships with a Paul, a Timothy, and a Barnabas in their life? And therefore, the reason they may have drifted from the faith is because they did not have a healthy flow of someone pouring into them, them pouring out to someone else, and someone to hold them accountable and to challenge them. Healthy relationships for your spiritual well-being. Well, as we go to the book of Acts, I want us to look at chapter 4 and look at the last two verses. Now, I need your undivided attention, everyone to stay seated where you are, because I'm going to have to take you on a little journey to get to the main point today. And I want you to follow me and stay with me, particularly if you have your Bibles open. The book of Acts, chapter 4, the last two verses, we're going to do a little study as we put a focus this morning on this fellow named Barnabas. I want us to really look and see what happens. I believe the Lord has something for us this morning to learn from his life and what we see from the Word of God. And we're going to see his incredible beginning, how he developed quite a, uh, quite a biography or a bio, how he did it, how he got there, and what took place in his life. So I'm going to read it, uh, Acts chapter 4, starting with verse 36. Don't be confused as we start the reading that his real name was Joseph, okay, but we're speaking of Barnabas, who, who we know as Barnabas. Acts chapter 4, verse 36. There was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means, by the way, son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi, and he came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned, and he brought the money to the apostles. So what we get from these two verses, it appears that what happened is that the apostles gave him uh, gave, he was given the name Joseph by his parents, but the apostles must have seen him in action, seen Joseph in action, and they watched his natural giftings. And by the way, those of us in church leadership, we do that. We watch you. How do you like that? Know that you're being watched. We see what your natural giftings are. Uh, you may be looking for a place of ministry in the church. Well, then put your hand to the plow. And the leadership will begin to see that and identify that and recognize it. That's exactly what happened here. The apostles saw what his natural giftings were with people, and he was an encourager. He was encouraging others. So the apostles did what we see happening all over the, New, all over the Old Testament. They changed his name, gave him a nickname. And you've seen that all through in your own reading. 
Abram's name was changed to? Sarai's name was changed to? And Jacob, after wrestling with God, his name was changed to Israel. And then even in the New Testament, when you look in Matthew chapter 16, we see that Jesus does the same thing with Peter. He changes his name from Simon to Peter, and he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. And so this man who was Joseph gets his name changed by the apostles, and they start to call him Barnabas because he was an encourager. Barnabas, the son of encouragement. So here comes Barney to church, okay? And what we found out is that he had owned a piece of property. We assume it was on the island of Cyprus by the way the narrative goes. And he brings all the money that he made off the property in this, uh, to, uh, off the property of selling his property. He brings it in an offering to the church. This is at the very end of, of chapter 4. And before you can blink, you move into chapter 5. And here we happen to find, I just parenthetically this morning, we happen to find another couple who also sold a piece of property, and they claimed that they were bringing all of the proceeds of the sale of that property into the offering of the church. But guess what? It wasn't all the money. They lied about it. And anybody have to know their names were? Ananias and Sapphira. We have a smart church here today. That's so great. So because... They were not honest about their offering. They were not honest about what they were bringing. Guess what? God killed them. And so my summation on that is the next Sunday, the offering was very big in the church. What do you think? So we begin to see the bio of Barnabas in Acts chapter 4. But now he reappears in Acts chapter 9. So run over there with me, please. Come on, Acts chapter 9. Stay with me. Now, we know the story of Saul, who was the persecutor of the church, and he gets saved on the road to Damascus, and later his name gets changed from Saul to to Paul. And so, guess what? Think about this. He's been this pretty violent persecutor of the church, as is is well known and well documented in Scripture. Now, he's coming to church. I wonder if you've ever thought about it this way. Who knows what family members in the church he might have jailed or killed when he was on a mission to destroy the church. Therefore, as Paul is now saved and coming into the church, no one uh, who's part of the church is really ready to trust this man that he truly has experienced a conversion. Look at Acts chapter 9 verse 26. When Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers, but they were all afraid of him, understandably. They did not believe he had truly become a believer. So let's just try to put that in our own situation here this morning. If Paul, who you knew as Saul, and you knew what he had done, and he had been uh, persecuting the church, would you want him in the church if he walked in today? Would you warmly welcome this guy into Bethesda, or would you not look carefully at him? I bet we'd get Officer Holland on him pretty quick if he walked into Bethesda today. But I want you to see what Barnabas did. This is what's important. Verse 27. What chapter are we on? What chapter are we on, church? Chapter 9. Verse 27. Then Barnabas brought him to the apostles, talking about Saul. His name is still Saul. 
and told them how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus and how the Lord had spoken to Saul. He also told them that Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. So Saul, who was later going to be named Paul, stayed with the apostles and went all around Jerusalem with them, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He debated with some Greek-speaking or Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to murder him. When the believers heard about this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him on his way to Tarsus, which was his hometown. What would have happened if Paul, at that time Saul, would have met the skeptics and there was no Barnabas there? Think about that for a second. I'll tell you what could have happened. There's any number of ways this could have played out. Paul could have easily just chucked it all and said, you know what? They're nicer to me in the world than they are in the church. You ever heard that before? You know, the non-believers accepted me for who I was. And these Christians, I don't know about this. That could have happened had there not been a Barnabas. We've all heard that, that people in the world are nicer than people in the church. And Paul could have thrown it all away completely, discouraged, tossed it all aside. But it was Barnabas, the great encourager, who comes to the people in the church and said, no, 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 this guy is the real deal. He really has found Christ. He really is converted. He really is saved. And here's what I'm asking you to see this morning, and that is this, that the role of Barnabas in this situation was very significant. For without Barnabas, who knows what could have happened to Paul. But it gets even better with Barnabas as we run over to chapter 11, Acts chapter 11. Come on, go now, Acts 11. In Acts chapter 11, there's a revival that takes place in the city of Antioch. And it was so massive, it became so well-known and, and so notorious that the early church from Jerusalem sent Barnabas down to go check it all out. Acts 11, verse 22. When the church at Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw this evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy and he encouraged the believers to stay true. What did he do? Oh, that's Barnabas. Of course he encouraged them. He encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. So here we find him doing what he's called to do and what he is doing by his own namesake. He's encouraging the people of the revival. Verse 24. This is critical, and I want you to hang on to this as we go forward. Barnabas was a good man. He was what? He was full of the Holy Spirit and strong in faith, and many people were brought to the Lord. So then Barnabas went on to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. Both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. And it was at Antioch, by the way, that the believers were first called Christians. I happen to know not everyone today is ready to be called a Christian, but I am proud to bear the name of Christ. How about you? I am proud to be called a Christian. We not only see Barnabas still being the encourager to all the people, but he also goes and he gets Paul. 
and he brings him to Antioch. And the two of them now are, are found teaching the church and they're serving as leaders. Hang on to that. Go to chapter 13. We'll be done with all this rabbit trail in a second when I pull it all together. Because in chapter 13, we now see a worship service taking place before the preaching, much as we saw here this morning. I think they were singing marvelous that day, as I recall. And right in the midst of the worship time, guess what happens? First of all, aren't you glad that right in the midst of any time that you're in worship, the Holy Spirit can speak to you? The Holy Spirit speaks, and He says this. I don't know if they were expecting it. I don't know if they were planning on it. But the Holy Spirit says, separate for me Paul and Barnabas. Acts 13, chapter 2. One day as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, dedicate Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. So after more fasting and more prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. And then the very next verse takes us into the very first missionary journey by Paul and Barnabas going as a team. Barnabas, the man who brought Paul to the church, the man who became somewhat of a mentor, if you will, to Paul. The man who went and got Paul from Tarsus and said, come on, come on, it's time for us to go into ministry. The man who poured himself into Paul is now going with him as his partner on his missionary journey. Then in Acts 15, our final passage from Acts, we see two pivotal things happen. Are you still with me? The first thing is called the Jerusalem Council. It's meeting time, okay? And right here, what we see in Acts 15, is where the church could have seriously messed up and gotten off the tracks. Seriously messed up. Because they faced the possibility of going completely into racism. And to separate Gentiles, or the non-Jews, from the Jews and keep them out of the church. They could have easily gone the route based upon what was happening, what we read of saying, you know, God is only interested in the Jewish people. He's only doing things with the Jews. Why do we need all these non-Jews to come into the church? They're just going to come in and mess up our traditions and mess up our families and, and everything else. Who knows what can happen when those folks come into the church? And that's when Paul and Barnabas stood up right in the middle of the people, right in church at Antioch. And they argued for the cause of the church being a multicultural church. Can anybody say hallelujah? The church wasn't to be just designed for one kind of people. But they were, they, Paul and Barnabas came to remind them, Jesus died for all. I said he died for all. The church now was at a critical crossroads when Paul and Barnabas were telling them that this gospel was not just for the Jews, but that this gospel is for every breathing person on the planet. Hallelujah. So Barnabas, the man who's known as the encourager, the man who brings Paul into ministry, he goes on missionary journeys with Paul. He sees miracles taking place. And then the final thing I want to read to you is from the book of Acts is the last few verses of chapter 15. Acts 15, I'm at verse 36. After some time, Paul said to Barnabas, 
Let's go back and visit each city where we previously preached the word of the Lord to see how the new believers are doing. And here is the pivotal point of the relationship between Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas agreed, and he wanted to take along John Mark. But Paul disagreed casually. Is that what your Bible says? Paul disagreed strongly since John Mark had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in their work. In fact, you know what the Bible says? Their disagreement was so sharp that they separated. Barnabas took John Mark with him and sailed for Cyprus. Paul chose Silas, and as he left, the believers entrusted him to the Lord's gracious care. Then he traveled throughout Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches there. Look again at verse 39. Their disagreement was so sharp that they separated from one another. Now listen to me. Here's what I want you to know. You don't hear the name Barnabas in the Bible for about six years. And then his name is going to pop up one more time in the whole of the New Testament. Barnabas! This guy who was Paul's main man, his mentor. A sharp disagreement takes place. And six years later, Paul speaks of Barnabas one last time. And we find those words in Galatians chapter 2. This was his teacher. This was his encourager. This was his example. And here are Paul's words six years after the disagreement. Paul speaking in Galatians chapter 2 says... Paul said, but when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face, for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile Christians who were not circumcised. But afterwards, when some of the big dudes showed up with James, maybe word a little different in the King James, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. How come? He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. So, let's get what's going on here. How, how much later is this than before? Six years. What's happening here is that racism is trying to creep back into the church. You know, just a little side trail here. It is always important in the church, as it is in our personal lives, that we remain vigilant. We must always be standing guard. And the temptation is to think that because God gave us victory six years ago, or God allowed us to get through a circumstance ten years ago, that we got that. Never again to be bothered by that. But how many of you know the enemy doesn't go to sleep on us? He's ready to come back, and he might take the very same thing, hello, the very same thing that you gained victory over some time back and allow it to creep right back in, right back into the church, right back into your personal life. It can happen, and that's why we must remain vigilant, because what's happening here is that which those gentlemen had addressed in the church prolifically six years before and thought they had corrected. It's creeping back in. And though 
they had said, the people of the church and leaders had said, oh, yes, this gospel is for everybody. When the upper echelon of the Jewish leaders came around, it didn't take them very long to revert back and say, well, oh, let's just eat with the Jews and not talk to the Gentiles. This did not go very well with the Apostle Paul. In fact, we would say today, it ticked him off pretty bad. He said, no, this is not what the gospel is about. We talked about this six years ago in Acts 15, because this gospel is for whosoever. How many whosoever's do we have in the house today? I just want to be sure it's really clear today. It doesn't matter what background you come from. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter your heritage. It doesn't matter if you were raised in church or not raised in church. It doesn't matter. Thank God that he died for all of us, and God can change your life no matter who you are. So Paul, addressing this situation, basically says this. says, Peter, hey, Pete, come here. Why all of a sudden... Are you only eating with the Jews when the big boys come to town? Well, what's up with that? But before they came, oh yeah, you were a Gentile man, and you were a Jewish man, and you were an everybody man. But when the highfalutin dudes show up, you quickly said, oh, no, 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 we just eat with the Jews. What, what is that, Peter? Still in Galatians 2, verse 12, the last part of it, just to show you, when some friends of James came... That's the big dogs. Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. Now, verse 13, I hope you're still with me. As a result, other Jewish Christians followed Peter's hypocrisy. Hmm. And even who? was what? Even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. After seeing all the good that we've seen Barnabas do. That's why I dragged you through all those chapters a few minutes ago. After seeing all the good that Barnabas had previously done, the words which ring in our ear from the last time we will ever hear from Barnabas are these. Even Barnabas was led astray. Listen to these words, church. Even the best of men are still men at best. Say that with me. Even the best of men. Now, here's what we got. Paul is calling his ministry partner a hypocrite. He's calling his first mentor a hypocrite, his traveling buddy, a hypocrite. He's calling his biggest cheerleader a hypocrite. Do you know what a hypocrite is? Do you know what it means to call someone a hypocrite? It comes from a Greek word which basically means an actor on a stage. An actor on a stage. But guess what actors do? Actors change costumes from scene to scene. So an actor on a stage, it means that you change costumes for whatever, whatever event you're going to. That means as you came to church this morning, 
you had on your church clothes so that you could act all churchy, right? Whatever that is. But when you walk out these doors in just a few minutes, if I ever get done preaching today, you're going to put on your driving on a freeway clothes. And then when you go to work tomorrow on Monday, you're going to put on your work clothes. And you're going to be somebody else entirely, possibly, if you're a hypocrite. And you may be all nasty and mean. Oh, but by Wednesday night, you're going to have your choir practice clothes on. And you'll be able to sing, hallelujah. But you've got to hurry and rush to the bathroom after choir practice because you've got to put your driving on the freeway clothes back on to get back home. And then when you get home, you put on your parent clothes and your husband clothes or your wife clothes. Can I just tell you something? And let's just be clear about this. In Christianity, for a true Christian, there's only one set of clothes, and it's the Jesus clothes, which we call the robes of righteousness that he gave you the moment you became saved. In every true Christian's closet, there's only one set of clothes. We are to look like Jesus, not like a denomination, not even like a church, not even like Bethesda. No, we are called to look like Jesus. And Paul is saying that even Barnabas, the same guy who chapter 11 said was a good man, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, an encourager, a giver. Even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. What happened? What happened? We just read all the good that he did for chapters. What happened? Now he's ending his race, being called a hypocrite. Well, church, here's something that you need to hang on to. You can never rely upon past successes to be enough to help you today. You can never rely upon your past successes to be enough to help you today. You have to rely upon Jesus every single day. No matter what you did last week or last month or 20 years ago, it, the, the power is not there in that to do what you have been called on to do today for the task today. When your testimony is only about what you did in times past instead of what God is doing in you and with you and through you today, then dear one, you are in danger. And then when you see how religious systems and traditions can be so strong in people's lives. Look what it did to Barnabas. Here's a good man. The Bible says a good man, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, an encourager, a giver. And a religious system can be so strong that it can even take a man like that and turn him into a hypocrite. I wonder if I can do that again. Hypocrite. No, didn't work. Hey, come on. Some of you, like me, grew up in a religious tradition. 
that was basically Christianity on a banana peel. If at any moment you mess up, bam, you're done. One-way ticket to hell. Is, is that anybody else or is it just me? Am I the only one? One slip and it's over. And God forbid if you ever went to a movie. In our early marriage, Becky and I were on staff at a church, not this one, a church where everything was a sin. Everything. If you got too much pleasure out of chewing gum, it was a sin. And certainly going to movies was a sin. Weren't we always told, it wasn't always said to us in church, what are you going to do if Jesus comes while you're sitting in that movie house? <laughs> Anybody else hear that or was it just me? <clears throat> I'm going to confess something to you this morning, okay? You ready? Years ago, it would have been in the late 70s, there was a light comedy <clears throat> that even a G rating would not be good enough for this that Becky and I wanted to see years ago. It was before we had children. It's probably before indoor toilets. I don't know. It was a long time ago. <laughs> but the religious system in which we were immersed forbade us from going. It would have been certainly as a musician in the church. There's no way. So we did the dumbest thing in the world. We disguised ourselves and went to... <laughs> There was just one theater in this small town, and I was sure that the church had somebody sitting right across the street with binoculars watching to see who went. But we really wanted to see this very innocent movie. We both, Miss Becky and I, we put on hoodies. Becky used blackjack gum and blacked out her teeth. I swear it's true. Who knows what all... I finally said, we're so conspicuous, they're just going to like think we're terrorists or something the way we're walking around. We snuck in the back of the theater, and I prayed quietly but passionately, Lord Jesus, please don't come in the next two hours. <laughs> when we left, she went out one door, and I went out the other. <laughs> it's true. It's very true. You know, they say a confession's good for the soul. I feel so much better now having <laughs> told you that. If you were raised like I was, weren't you terrified when you came home and nobody was there? You were just sure the rapture had taken place. You just know the rapture had taken place. So if you did what I did, you need to start trying to find somebody that you knew was a solid Christian and was going to heaven. And I'd get on that rotary phone, which would take forever. Some of you don't even know what a rotary phone is. And dial it and dial it and, dial it, and nobody would answer. And then my older sister would walk in, but that didn't help because I knew she wasn't going to heaven. Who knows what I'm talking about? In those days, you could never be really sure if you were okay in God's eyes or not. I mean, we went to the altar every service. I prayed the sinner's prayer every time I got on an airplane. Because that's what a religious system can do to you. Women couldn't wear makeup or jewelry. Women couldn't wear slacks. You couldn't play cards. You couldn't read the comics on Sunday. And the religious system can follow you for years. Until you really begin to understand something about the grace of God. God's unmerited favor. 
Do you deserve it? No. Do you get good enough to get it? No. But is his grace absolutely amazing? You better believe it is. But somehow, the good man, the full of faith man, the full of the Holy Spirit man, the giving man, the encouraging man, turns into a hypocrite. Is it because of the religious system that overtook him? Let me be honest. As strong as the religious system is, I don't really think that's what brought him down. As much success as he had known in miracles and revivals and such, I don't really think his problem was relying on past success. I think, and I think there's room in Scripture for what we've read today for me to tell you what I think happened. I think it was the sharp disagreement that set this man off. You might not think that's true. In fact, you might be rather dismissive. It's a big deal. It's a disagreement. We all have them every day. But I think the Holy Spirit put this in Scripture to remind us of something, church. Listen to me. That the smallest thing can set us off course. That's why we must be vigilant. The smallest thing can set us off course. A sharp disagreement with someone that you love and respect, who means so very much to you, can literally set you in the wrong direction. Here's what I think happened. I think something got caught in his heart. Something got caught in his heart. And if we wanted to do, I think we could say he got one degree off. If it's a ship or an airplane trying to get to a specific location, just one click One degree doesn't really mean very much until you go with it far enough. I'm supposed to go straight ahead and get off just one degree. I hardly notice it. I probably don't even notice it at all. But the longer I go in that one degree off, you get six, seven, ten years down the road, and you are further off course than you ever intended. And here's Barnabas six years later, and the one degree change of the sharp disagreement has taken its toll because Barney didn't fix it. Go do your own thing, Paul. A sharp disagreement. And it doesn't really matter which one was right and which one was wrong. doesn't matter. After six years, we find the good, giving, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit encourager, now being called a hypocrite. Some of you know that our son, Pastor Shader, who's a youth pastor here, he worked for about seven years in professional baseball. He maintains many of those relationships. In fact, he's at a retreat this weekend for those men of that community who are strong believers. This group is called Calling for Christ. It's headed by umpire Ted Barrett, who often is the crew chief for the World Series. He was the last time that the Rangers were in the World Series. He and Shader have maintained a very good relationship. Shader actually had him come and speak to our youth one night when he happened to be in town doing a series with the Rangers. Now, I'm not a baseball aficionado, and I know we have some in the room, one particularly. I'm certainly not the aficionado that my son is, but I've heard many interesting stories. And to my knowledge, listen to me, the last 30-win season for a pitcher was all the way back in 1968. It's a guy by the name of Denny McLean. That's been almost 50 years ago. And the one just before him... To have accomplished the same thing was 24 years before that, 1934. He was a guy by the name of Dizzy Dean. Anybody ever heard that name before? 
Well, apparently, it's no easy feat winning 30 games in a season. It must, must be pretty huge. But here's the story. After Dizzy Dean had experienced that incredible season of 1934, he was pitching in the All-Star Game of 1937. Earl Averill of the Cleveland Indians hit a line drive that hit Dizzy Dean in the big toe, and it broke his toe. But Dizzy didn't want to stop pitching because they were in, a, I think, a pennant race that particular year. And he would not take the time to stop and let the toe heal or fix the toe. He wouldn't do it. And he came back way too soon from the injury. He was told to sit out the rest of the season, but he wouldn't do it because he was sure he could make it work. But in order to still throw, guess what he had to do? He had to change his pitching motion to avoid landing on that broken toe quite so hard, which then, because he changed his pitching motion, it affected his mechanics. And as a result of trying to change the mechanics and, and trying to, to accommodate this one little toe that's broken, he hurt his arm, he lost his great fastball, and by 1938, the very next year, his arm was basically gone, and so was his career. Check it out. It's all true. All because he wouldn't fix a toe and allow it to heal properly. It's just one little thing. It's just a toe. What's the big deal? What's the big deal? It's just a disagreement, Pastor Dan. We have them all the time. What's the big deal? Here's the big deal. It's that one degree off. Isn't it amazing that couples seem to do their best fighting on Sunday morning on the way to church? That's what you call nervous laughter that we just heard. <laughs> One of the greatest days of marriage between Becky and I was the day we decided to take two cars to church instead of trying to go in the same car. <clears throat> that way she can get here when she wants. I can arrive when I want. Hallelujah. I had a pastor friend that told me that he and his wife always did almost any of their fussing they did on the way to church. Typically because he had to wait in the car for long past the time they needed to leave. And uh, is, can I get a witness from any of the men in the house this morning? <laughs> oh, no, you're sitting next to your wife. You better not. She just nudged you. I saw it. Well, this pastor friend of mine had a sharp disagreement with his wife. And then he, on the way to church, said some things he really regretted. He was not about to apologize because she needed to change her attitude. And he was praying the Holy Spirit would convict her. And he was convinced that the Lord was going to convict her and she would apologize to him. But then he said all of a sudden, as coming getting closer to the church, he said the Holy Spirit started convicting him of his mouth and how sharply he'd spoken to his wife. He said that, he said, I was just feeling so intensely convicted that he said, my, my whole body just began to get really hot, and I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm sweating profusely, and I just think, I, I can't, the Lord is coming on me in such a way that's just affecting me that I had no idea, he's getting hotter and hotter, and, and, and the Holy Spirit's convicting him, and finally he bursts up with an apology, he says, sweetheart, I'm sorry. And he apologized. I shouldn't have said what I, what I did. I just, the Holy Spirit's convicted me. And he said, I'm just so hot. She says, yeah, I know. I turned the heated seat on so the Holy Spirit would convict you. <laughs> Try that, lady. See if that works for you next time. John Wesley, the great Methodist preacher, said this, keep short accounts with God. Keep short accounts with God.
Why? I think it's because Solomon said in Proverbs 23, guard your heart above all else. I'm praying as we go into 2017 that we as a church, that we as individuals know what it means to be vigilant, to not let something get caught in our hearts, that we will guard our heart for it determines the course of your life. Don't let things continue on between you and anybody that need to be resolved. Don't just keep thinking, oh, it's no big deal. It's just a disagreement. Don't allow that one degree off to mess you up entirely. Barnabas may have been right. I don't know. Because you know what? Let me tell you something. You can be right and still be wrong. Think about that. You can be right and still be wrong. We live in a church and in a world where people are going to do wrong things to you. It's going to happen. It's inevitable. And it really doesn't matter which church you're a part of. It's going to happen anywhere. But the Bible knows that one degree can take us off course. And so here's, here's what it tells you. It says, I give you permission to get really mad. The Bible tells you that. You've got permission to get really mad. I'm glad about that. But with a time limit. You must resolve it by sundown. Ephesians 4 says, don't let and don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. Why? For anger gives a foothold to the devil. Listen to me as I bring this to a close. Hurt not dealt with will turn to bitterness. And bitterness not dealt with will turn to hardness. Haven't we just spent this week consecrating ourselves to God? Haven't we just given Him our first week, dedicating ourselves to Him, making ourselves available for His use, asking Him to keep our hearts pure and tender before Him? Well, church, it may all start for some of us, if not all of us, by correcting that one degree off. Fixing that one small thing that you thought was no big deal. But somehow today, the Holy Spirit has nudged you and said, fix it for the glory of Jesus. And the church said, I want those who are going to be praying for the business people, if you would quickly take your place. We're not going to elongate this service. I know the hour, and I'm sorry I took so long. I just wanted to deliver all that to you today. And let me say this very quickly. I happen to notice, everyone else, stay seated, please. We've not dismissed the service. I happen to notice on the church calendar that Friday, the 6th of January, is what is known in liturgical circles as epiphany. Some of you know what that means, and some of you don't. I grew up in a Pentecostal church, and we paid absolutely no attention to liturgical things. We probably thought it was wicked and sin and awful and bad and tried to reject it. And I've learned that what typically happens is as the church gets cold and loses its life, it goes into form. <clears throat> but the truth is this. We have been very guilty of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. There are lots of things in liturgy that are full of life and rich. I love reading the common book of prayers, Marty. There's some wonderful things there. And my answer is, why can't we have both? 
Why can't we still be full of life and read something? That's why we do this often on a Sunday night. We will, we will uh, read a prayer that's already been written, maybe centuries ago. And we are simply saying, we can read this, we can quote this, and it still has life. I don't think we have to have the separation of the two. You may have heard there's a new wave kind of sweeping the country called ancient, the Ancient Future Church has quite an attraction to millennials. I think it's, got some, it's a fascinating study. As long as there is life and that we do not separate ourselves from the life of Christ, the vibrancy of the Holy Spirit, and just accept form without life. I believe there's a place for both. Well, I did a little, little bit of looking into this thing called Epiphany. Some of you may know exactly what it is. You know, it's different whether you're talking the Eastern Church. I'm not talking about New Jersey. I'm talking about the Eastern Church. And as opposed to the Western Church, there's some different understandings. It has something to do with the Magi coming. But basically what it means is the appearing, the appearing of Christ, coming as the Son of Man. It's a celebration of the, the coming of man, the Son of Man. And the implications with it all is that in His coming, He brings His presence. And as He brings His presence, there is a blessing with that. And so I'm asking all the business people, if you are in business, would you stand right now and make your way to the front? And as you do, these folks are going to just simply anoint you with oil as you pass through the end of the aisle. Uh, those of you who are praying, step forward more toward the aisle and make room and then pass through them and come on to the front. And then we're going to pray a prayer of faith because we're believing God to bless you for this year. Come on down from the balcony, pass through these folks, and then step on forward here.